Great news. Thank you, Stephen. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them to the second chapter of the book of Romans. And let's return to verse 1, and we'll try to uh, mop up verse 1 tonight. Just want to remind you, if you are interested, men, there is basketball that uh, takes place after we're finished here. And... Um, also, I've got blue cards. If anybody has not yet signed those, I've got some for you to sign. Let me uh, kind of get us a running start. Oh, well, let me read the verse first. Uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. The real problem uh, that begins to unfold in verse or in chapter two is that Paul is addressing a problem that he senses that a Jew has. That is, that they don't understand the doctrine uh, that he mentions in the uh, 18th verse of chapter one. They don't understand the wrath of God. And if you'll look at verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And that's the part they didn't understand. Uh, they, they fully uh, uh, agreed that the wrath of God was needed, etc. But the idea that it included them uh, was not something that they um, uh, understood and accepted. And so uh, because they never saw themselves being included in that, that term all, the whole idea of the necessity of justification by faith alone was, was um, not even something that they considered. It wasn't, um, it wasn't needed because they weren't people being or who resided under that wrath. And so that's the setting of chapter 2. That's the error that Paul is trying to correct uh, as he begins this argument in chapter 2. That is that indeed Jews are also to be included in this, um, in this, outpouring of God's wrath against all ungodliness and therefore are so in need of this gospel that he displays, uh, a gospel of justification by faith. Um, and so I said to you last week, it's almost as if someone in the back of the room shouts, way to go, Paul, after he's finished chapter one. That's really good, Paul. We really agree with what you're saying there, Paul. Way to go. Absolutely. Get those Gentiles. And then Paul says, oh, by the way, I need to address another issue. And so he, uh, he the point that I was making last week is that here are people who, who think that they are in agreement with what Paul is saying, when in fact they don't even understand what Paul is saying. Uh, because of the subtlety of sin, they, they conclude that they indeed are agreeing with what Paul has said, when in fact they don't understand what Paul has said. So Paul sets out in chapter 2 to convince Jews that God's wrath is upon them too, that they are included and thus are in need of a Savior. If you'll notice this argument, he concludes it in chapter 3, verse 23, which is a verse that so many of you um, have memorized in the past. For he says in chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, and that's something that the Jew did not understand. But that's the argument that is before us in chapter 2. Um, and the first thing, or the first part of his argument, guys, 
And, and what you're going to find in chapter 2 is that this is a multifaceted argument. But that what he's trying to demonstrate is that Jews need to listen up too. That they're included in this, uh, this thing that God is doing. And so he is going to argue from all different... I mean, he's going to make one point and then another point and then another point. And what you get in verse 1 is really just the first line of his argument. It's just... But again, what he's trying to convince them of is that you're included here, guys. But this is only point one as he attempts to do that. Um, and what he says is that, um, that the Jew is entirely without excuse uh, because, he says, you are inexcusable, O man, because you are really condemning your own self by doing the same things that he despised in those rotten, nasty, filthy Gentiles. That's what he says in verse 2. You, by your condemnation of them, are condemning yourself. And I, I'm going to explain that more fully, but that's the message of verse 1. His argument is that the, that the Jew is entirely without excuse because by his judging others, he is actually condemning himself. Now let me explain. Um, that is, the Jew is, by judging, in essence, is setting standards by which he himself will be judged. So he is trying to convince them that if you are quick to judge those Gentiles, uh, and if you're so quick to condemn them for all of their failures, then don't complain when that same standard is applied to you. You are setting a standard by your judgments and, um, and by so doing, having set that standard, don't complain when it's applied to you. Now, the, the Jew would, of course, agree with all that Paul said in chapter 1. You remember when he's listing all of these horrible, rotten sins? He would, of course, agree with everything that Paul was saying about condemning those things and that they were indeed deserving of God's wrath. But in their minds, they weren't guilty of any of these. It was only those Gentiles that were guilty. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a fundamental mistake. And, and a mistake that we need to examine and make sure we understand uh, ourselves. There is a difference, ladies and gentlemen, um, between being guilty before... Uh, there is a difference between being guilty and under the wrath of God and the and the I'm not saying this very well the um, guys God's concern is not so much about the commission of particular sins his particular concern is not about the eradic eradicate uh, eradicating all in particular sins his particular concern is about the essence of sin. Now, to illustrate what I'm trying to say to you so poorly, do you know what the argument of Jesus is in, in the Sermon on the Mount? Do you remember that? For instance, um, if you've never... He mentions certain things like murder. You remember that argument in the Sermon on the Mount? And, and he would say, You have heard it said, Thou shalt not commit murder. 
And then he would come back and say, but I say unto you, if you are angry, you have already committed that sin. And that's where the Jew misunderstood. Perhaps you will misunderstand. You remember the, another example he uses. He says, um, you have heard it said that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you have committed adultery. So the Jew reasoned, okay, I haven't done that. I haven't killed anybody. And I haven't uh, committed adultery. Therefore, these things that Paul, are, that Paul are mentioning and are under the wrath of God, I haven't done any of those. And their mistake is they misunderstand that God is not so much concerned about the particular violations as he is. The essence of sin which, which, which flows out of a heart that is not right, not out of hands that do something in, in, that may be wrong. Jesus talks about that all the time in the New Testament, ladies and gentlemen. When he says, you know, you're worried about what goes in the belly. I'm worried about what comes out. Because the, the fornications and idolatries and all that face, it, it flows out of within. And the Jew looks at himself in the mirror and says, I haven't done any of that. Oh, okay, all is well. That is to misunderstand, ladies and gentlemen, the essence of sin. It is not the act, but the spirit that God is seeking to address. You know, if, if the actual committing of a sin makes things worse indeed. But you can be guilty without the act. And that's something that Jews never understood, and perhaps still don't today. Um, you know, guys, uh, just to make this distinction, would you rather me be angry at you or murder you? Well, obviously, the ramifications of that are different. And in terms of doing the act, it does make things worse. But the spirit of the thing is the thing that, that renders me guilty before God, not so much the actual act. But to condemn somebody else for the act simply demonstrates that I know that that thing is indeed wrong. And though I may not be guilty of the act, I may be committing the thing in my heart, and thus I condemn myself. Did, did, did I lose you? Let, let me try to state it in a lot of different ways. Folks, when Paul says, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are that judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. So the Jew steps back and says, I don't blame you for judging that, God. I don't blame you for judging murder. Yes, sir, you ought to judge them all. But I didn't do that. But to make that conclusion is to misunderstand the very essence of sin. And so when he says, I condemn that act, when I am guilty of the same act in my heart, Paul's saying, you are judging yourself because you are condemning in others what you have committed in your heart. Yes, indeed, they may have committed it overtly, but you have violated those standards at the base of your soul. 
and by so doing and by condemning them you demonstrate that you understand that it's wrong to do that and yet you continue to do those things uh, on the on the inside as opposed to the outside now gang I, I hope my the rest of my comments will clarify for you if you're still lost but one of the reasons that I wanted to come back to this text and spend the rest of this night on it is because I think that there is contained in this verse one of the clearest demonstrations of the ravages of sin in all of us let me explain don't you think that it is utterly astonishing that you and I can see sin so clearly in somebody else and find it so difficult to see it in us and that's what you see these Jews doing oh yeah they are quick to to, to damn that thing when I saw them doing it ignoring what is going on in the recesses of my soul is it not amazing that we can see sin so clearly committed in others when we cannot see that same sin going on in our own heart i have a million examples for you for instance i see it taking place in politics you know ladies and gentlemen i have said things that i regret um lots of them um, my only comfort is that at the end of his life, Augustine, the great uh, thinker from North Africa, Augustine at the end of his life wrote a book entitled Retractionis. So at the end of my life, I'm writing my book. But, uh, but um, you know, I think you identify, in fact, we almost identify ourselves as being kind of a bunch of Republicans. I think that's very unfortunate. And, I, and I'm, I've led the, the pack. My, my point is this. You remember how, how hard the Republicans were on uh, President Clinton? Rightly or wrongly, I'll let you judge. I think you know where I, where I stand on that. Um, but do you remember, while the Republicans were taking such pleasure in seeing the Democrats squirm, the the stole the the flag bearer was a guy by the name of Newt Gingrich, who was having an affair himself. And so all the Republicans were all hot and bothered about all that sin we see over in them guys. When in our own camp, the our our, our banner waver doing the same thing isn't it remarkable that we can see sin so clearly in someone else and yet not see it going on in our own souls um labor management ladies and gentlemen this is a pretty dangerous statement because i probably have in this audience tonight a half a dozen federal express pilots but do you remember back over a little over a year ago when this city was embroiled in that, that horrible thing that was going on in Federal Express that could have probably cratered this whole city? I mean, I, I, was, I was praying for it 
that it would be resolved. And, and by the way, I ran into a guy at the uh, workout center the other day, and he said, I didn't agree with what those guys were doing over at your church, but there are a whole lot of us that point to that praying bunch over at your church that, that solved that thing. But, but do you remember how, how um, labor was pointing to management and saying that they were guilty of greed? Do you possibly think that any of labor could have been guilty of greed? Oh, no. Isn't it amazing? that we can so clearly see sin in others that we can't see in ourselves. Um, <clears throat> do you ever get just really irritated at people who are selfish? That's the most selfish person I've ever met. All they do is talk about Isn't it amazing how quickly we can see that in somebody else? But there is no selfishness in us. And what I'm saying is, this text gives us, I think, a marvelous illustration about how ravaged we all are. All of us. And one of the illustrations ravaged by sin, you know, we talk about this fall thing you know, that took place back in Genesis 3. How bad did it affect us? Well, I'll tell you how bad it affected us. It affected us so badly that every one of you I define as selfish, but not me. I'm the only one here that doesn't have that problem. The rest of you are selfish. And sin is so subtle, has, has ravaged me so deeply that I can see it clearly in you. And then people have to kind of take me aside and say, oh, you know, Dr. Young, uh, you know, I, I guess I'm really scared to tell you this, you know, but you know, where, you know when you did that, that was awfully selfish. And I said, Is that not alarming, ladies and gentlemen? Do you see what the Jew had done? By condemning it in others, he revealed and demonstrated that he understood that it was wrong. So the standard is set, selfishness is bad. Real bad. But by stating that, he set up a standard which did nothing but condemn him. But he couldn't see that. Therefore, you're inexcusable, old man. Whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. Do you see it, ladies and gentlemen? See, again, Paul's trying to establish that they too are involved and included 
in this all thing back in Romans 1.18. And this is just his first point. And he says, I want to show you how I know that you're under it too, and you guys better listen up. Because when you condemn that in somebody else, you demonstrate that you understand how bad it is. And I'm telling you, you're doing the same thing, and by so doing, you have just condemned yourself. Is that not brilliant? I mean, brilliant logic on the part of Paul. Not my, my rendering on it, but let me tell you my favorite story, or my, my favorite illustration of this, this whole principle. And I've got uh, about three others, and we'll finish. My, my, my favorite one is in 2 Samuel 12. And if you've never seen this, I'd like you all to turn. It's in the Old Testament. Um, 2 Samuel is right after 1 Samuel. <laughs> so if you can find 1 Samuel, you can find 2 Samuel. Now, let, let me tell you what happens. Um, I think you know the story. David is the king of Israel. He's the one that ascended to the throne because he, he sprung onto the scene by uh, taking care of Goliath and everybody else was shuddering in their boots. So David takes care of Goliath and then everybody starts singing, David slayed his thousands, I mean his ten thousands, but Saul has only slayed his thousands. And that kind of set up a little problem because Saul was kind of, you know. But anyway, they finally had a battle and Saul lost and David takes the throne. And um, uh, he starts fighting all the wars and, and subduing the enemies of Israel. And so David then is established on the throne and his armies are out fighting one, one season. You know, there was church season and there's war season. Well, Israel had war season and, and they were out fighting all their enemies. And David, he never should have been, he should have been out there with his armies, but he's up on the top of his house just strolling around enjoying a nice spring evening and he sees some chick who comes up onto the roof and takes a bath for heaven's sakes. Buck naked. So he looks at this woman and lusts after her and sends his bodyguard over to get her. Bring her on over to my house. And you know the rest. Sleeps with her, impregnates her, tries to get her husband home from the front lines. You know, Uriah the Hittite is good buddy. Brings Uriah home, says, go sleep with your wife. No, I wouldn't dream of doing that. Not when the armies of Israel are out there fighting. I wouldn't dream of doing that. He says, oh. So he tries to get, tries to get him drunk. You know, Uriah won't cooperate. And so finally, he sends a letter to Joab, the, the, the captain of the army, and says, what, uh, just put Uriah at the heat of the battle, you know, right, right at the front. And uh, when the enemy is attacking, leave him. Sound the, sound the retreat and bring all your armies off. Let him fight them. And you know what happens. Uriah gets killed. And so uh, Uriah, uh, the, uh, Joab, the captain of the army, sends a letter back to David and says, David, it happened. Uriah's dead. David said, well, don't, don't, don't fret. It's okay. You just keep on doing a good job. Off, and, off he runs. Now, now we come to 2 Samuel 12. God goes and gets one of his prophets. Uh, this story is uh, told in 2 Samuel 12. Um, then the Lord sent Nathan to David. <laughs> Here he is. Here comes the judge. Here comes Nathan the prophet. And he came to him and said to him, are you, are you with me? I'm at verse 1. There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he bought nourished. And it grew up together with him with his children. 
it ate in his own food and drink and from his own cup and lay in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. <laughs> kind of sick, don't you think? But I mean, it's just a story. You know, did you, there's two guys down in this city. One of them was real, real rich, had a whole lots of sheep. There's one guy who was real poor. He only had one sheep. It was just like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man. And this rich guy refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who would come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who would come to him. You see what happened? Rich man, poor man, lots of sheep, one sheep, daughter sheep. Rich man has a visitor come in. Rich man goes over and steals this one little daughter sheep from the poor guy. Instead of taking one of the sheep of his own flock, he takes the daughter sheep, slays it and feeds it to his buddy. And uh, Nathan tells that story to the king of Israel. And, uh, and the text says, David, what do you think about that, David? Verse 5. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. He shall restore fourfold the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. What do you think, David? What do you think about somebody who would do that? Well, I think that guy's a rotten criminal. Oh, we ought to kill him, Nathan. Take him out and swim, Nathan. I can't believe anybody would do such a terrible thing as that. And you know what happens next? Nathan says, You're the man, David. Do you see what David did? Do you see how quick David was? to condemn and judge and spot the sin in somebody else and react against it in utter horror when in fact the one who was guilty And by his reaction of verse 5, who is condemned? David. Look at the text, ladies and gentlemen. That's exactly what Paul is saying in Romans 2.1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself because you practice the same things. But, ladies and gentlemen, because of the ravages of sin, we can see it crystal clearly in you. When I can't see it at all in me. That, ladies and gentlemen, is how sin has ravaged. Not only can I see it in you, I'm quick to condemn you and judge you for it. That's what sin's done to us, folks. I um, have another example and then I'll quit. Matthew chapter 7. 
you know this text. In fact, it is said that the non-Christian world knows two verses. This is one of them. The, the second verse that he knows is, wives submit. They know that one. This is the other one they know. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not, that you be not judged. Let me read you the first five verses of Matthew 7. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Again, guys, that's just another statement of the same truth that we are very quick to judge a speck in somebody else's eye, not realizing that there is a plank in our own. Oh, my. Oh, my, what has sin done to us? All of us. we can so clearly see sin in someone else when in fact the same sin is being committed by ourselves and we make excuses for it. We, we try to, oh yes, but the reason that I do that is because We um, are committing things that we condemn in others but wouldn't dream of, commit, of condemning in ourselves. And instead of condemning it in ourselves, we make excuses for it. Guys, that's what sin's done to us. Let me put it another way and then I'll quit. A couple of ways and then... Um, <laughs> I'm... Um, I, I, I do this, ladies and gentlemen, because I think this is what the Scriptures are supposed to do, us, do to us. I think it's supposed to search us. And at the end, I think it's supposed to drive us to the Gospel. That, that our only deliverance can be found in a Gospel that reveals the righteousness of God from faith to faith. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones used to love to say that there's nothing that teaches justification by faith alone better than the Sermon on the Mount. Because after you read it and understand it, your only hope isn't a God-provided Savior. But anyway, let me let me let me put my point a little bit differently, and then we'll close. Do you ever find yourself having a measure of pleasure in hearing about the failures of others? from a view of myself that says I get pleasure out of hearing your failures because 
I would never do that. Um, I'll ask another. I'll ask it another way. Are you slow to extend mercy? If you are, it's the same thing. Because when somebody besides ourselves fails, if we understood that we're made out of the same stuff, we would be quick to rush in with mercy instead of condemnation and judgment. But if we are slow to mercy, I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, I, I have to tell you this. I'll be 52 soon. And I am, the older I get, the more merciful I become. And it's not because age has made me better. It's because I've seen so many failures in my own, my own experience. So I mean, it makes me a little bit less prone. Are you slow to extend mercy? I want to tell you about one observation and then I, I quit. I've been in the ministry almost 25 years. It'll be 25 years this June. And I want you to know that the people, this is just an observation. You take it in for what it's worth. You can see whether, find out whether it's true or not. The people that I find who are most sensitive to criticism are the people who are most who are most critical of others. The people most sensitive to being criticized are the most critical. Give it some thought. My friends, when we have truly seen ourselves in the light of the biblical presentation of sin and its vestiges, we wouldn't dream of being hard and judgmental and critical on each other. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O oh man. Whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. It's time, if you've got a committee meeting or a choir practice, it's time to flee. And then I'll close us in prayer. Let me pray and we'll go home. Oh God, how we love this book. We don't worship the book, but we worship the God who, who put it in print through the uh, great inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
And we want to hear what it says because we don't want to be blinded, oh God, in any way. We want the truth, nothing but the truth. So help us, God. Help us to see it and understand it and grasp it and love it and respond to it and change accordingly and live lives that are hedged in by this book. Nothing else. No men's codes. No denominational statements. No human code of ethics. But this one, oh God. This one which is born from above. Oh, how we want to be hedged in by it. Might we all find ourselves seeking to emulate Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. Nothing more, but nothing less. We make our prayer, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and good night. Blue cards. I've got blue cards if anybody needs to sign one still. Um, be a great time to get it over with.